Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. I would like to introduce Dr. Allison Matthews. She's actually in Brazil, y'all, but she is so dedicated tonight that she is actually calling in, and we tested out her video earlier, and it was okay, but not ideal. So what we're going to do is our first-time audio interview, and we're going to see if we can get you unmuted. Dr. Matthews, can you hear us okay, Allison? Yes, I'm here. Hi, everyone. Awesome, lady. How you doing? How was your travel? I see you you popped in, you know, to uh, South America. You checking out the food. How everything going? Everything is great. It's actually a little chilly here, which I was not expecting, but um, I'm enjoying just, you know, exploring a new continent and a new country. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, let me just read your backdrop so people can know who you are. Dr. Allison Matthews serves as executive director and research fellow in the faith and in faith and health. She specializes in integrating technology, social marketing, community engagement, and social science to examine the intersections of race, gender, class, sexuality, and religiosity. I don't even know that word. On HIV-related stigma and to innovate clinical research engagement, engagement and access to healthcare for underserved populations. Dr. Matthews is founder of Community Expert Solutions, CES, an organization that innovates community engagement for clinical trial research and public health campaigns. They use qualitative research, social marketing technology and crowdsourcing to support their clients while effectively promoting health equity. Welcome, Dr. Matthews. Allison, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good, good. Tell us a little bit about you. You know, I love when we sit down with people to really hear what we call their origin story. You know, had you always been into HIV health equity? How did you get started? Where did you start? Give us your background, your origin story. Actually, um, I feel like HIV chose me for many reasons. Um, I was not originally interested in HIV as a field, um, was it? And I, I can't even really say that I was personally impacted by it until later on in life. But um, I was originally interested in trying to understand racism and discrimination because I had experienced my own, you know, like we all have experienced our own experiences with discrimination. And, um, <clears throat> and I think also I was interested in how uh, sexuality, sexual orientation, um, and gender identity, emotions, all of those things, how those things play into our experiences with racial discrimination, um, especially because I have family members and friends who identify as gay and trying to understand like, okay, if we're in the black community and we're experiencing racism, why are we then um, going to discriminate against 
people, LGBT folks in our own community, like we're reproducing inequality and just in oppression. So I didn't understand why that was happening. And so I just started to explore those questions more deeply in my research, but also it was informed by, by my personal life. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. You know, one thing I love that's exciting about your work is that you are, in my mind, you know, a straight hustler, right? I mean, you're doing everything. You're executive director, you're founder, you're DEI consultant. That's, you know, my words, right? So tell us about the work you do at the Compass Initiative Faith Coordinating Center. Yeah, so the faith, the Compass Initiative is a $100 million 10-year initiative by Gilead Sciences, which is a pharmaceutical company that manufactures HIV medications. And so they've committed to putting money into Black, Indigenous, um, and Latinx-led organizations across the U.S. South to end the HIV epidemic. And so the Faith Coordinating Center is one of four coordinating centers that um, that addresses different aspects of HIV. So we focus on faith-based initiatives. And it's interesting because the United States has, doesn't really have a lot of faith-based initiatives around HIV uh, because of the stigma. You know, a lot of people don't agree with homosexuality in the Black community and in Black churches in particular. And um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of stigma and unfortunately, churches have been the main uh, one of the main sources of stigma around HIV. And so we're actually we were founded in 2021 to coordinate efforts to put money into faith based organizations that are committed to addressing HIV stigma in a responsible and compassionate way. And so we we fund organizations, we do trainings with them, um, and then they go out and train uh, faith leaders in their communities. And we work with organizations across 12 states in the Deep South. Um, in addition to that, we have, you know, some larger initiatives uh, called, it, we, we actually just launched it called Black Faith and HIV and our new website, blackfaith.org. And so with that initiative, we're really trying to, you know, push the envelope in these conversations about HIV, about sexuality, about trauma um, in, in church hurt and faith-based trauma, um, talking about, you know, how relationships and, and domestic violence and stigma and all of those things, like really kind of pulling the veil back and having these really deep and important and long overdue conversations. Awesome. You know, that, that kind of warms my heart. And I tell you why is that I can see that, you know, business school taught me to follow, you know, the cash flow. Right. So I see you have, a, you know, the, the Gilead, you know, they make, you know, the drugs, they invest in this faith based initiative. And you're director of, you know, executive director of at the Divinity School of Wake Forest that works to address this HIV stigma in faith based communities across the Southeast United States. I love that. But what I also love is you didn't stop there, right? You didn't say, hey, I'm gonna do my nine to five. You continued on and you established an organization called Community Expert Solutions. Do you mind telling us about that? Yeah, so um, a Community Expert Solutions is a consulting company that I started with two of my best friends, Alexandra Anderson and Marcus Holly. Actually, Marcus works also on the Compass with the Compass Initiative at the Faith Coordinating Center. 
Um, and so with that company, um, it really kind of is an offshoot of my research also, but um, the idea of crowdsourcing contests. So the idea is that you go out into the community, you ask them what they want, you do it in a form of a contest. Like, how do you want to be engaged around finding a cure for HIV? How do you want to be, what kind of campaign would work well in your community to promote HIV prevention medications? And so they, so that's the question. We pose it to the community. They submit creative responses, like ideas for campaigns or ideas for, for uh, web, you know, web episodes or whatever you know that or or art or spoken word poetry you know all of those things and we select the best winners and or the best finalists and then we give them prizes and we so we celebrate those ideas online that was kind of the basic initial kind of um method for us to start the company and then from that, a lot of the community-based ideas that we we work, we started working with community members, and they had some amazing ideas. One of them was to start to make it easier for people living with HIV who are uninsured to get access to medications that they can afford. So we we developed this um, application. It was an online app that um, automated the process of pre-screening people's eligibility for programs that paid for HIV medication and connected them, them into care. So, you know, so then it was like, okay, now I'm learning. I, I started out as a researcher. I know how to do interviews and focus groups, but now I'm building an app. <laughs> and, you know, so there was a huge learning curve, but um, we started out with that kind of content expertise, you know, in HIV. We really knew the community well. We really knew um, that part, the problem well. And so then we got connected to uh, another UNC alum, um, Charles Campbell, who was our developer. And then from there, it kind of just continued. People started learning more about our work and, and the amazing things that we were doing and wanted to work with us. So we've done projects with um, George Washington, with uh, university, with um FHI 360, some international projects. Um, so we just continue to to grow, and it's it's really been a blessing to be able to do that work on alongside a full time job. <laughs> awesome. You know, one thing um, I love about your initiative is that you guys are now deep technology. You know, we interviewed Charles Campbell on the show a few weeks ago, talking about um, his business that he's launching for helping to teach financial um, literacy to um, young children. And it was kind of cool because I ran into him at UNC and I was like, oh, I got Allison on the interview and then I interviewed him. So it's really cool. And Charles is awesome when it comes to app development and stuff like that. So it's really cool to see that you guys are leveraging some very contemporary technology skills to solve these problems in front of you. One last question about your career. And, you know, I would love to hear, you know, um, where you got your PhD from also, because I left that out in the bio, but you also continue to work as a DEI consultant, right? So tell us about if people go to Dr. Allison Matthews, what do they find and what type of, you know, individual consulting work do you do? Uh, I earned my master's and my PhD from how, I mean, from UNC Chapel Hill, but I was made at Howard University awesome. <laughs> um, undergrad. <laughs> so, you know, that's where my, all my intellectual, I guess, uh, 
growth and development started and then I finished it at, uh, you know, at UNC Chapel Hill. I, I would say, I think, you know, websites only do so much, but I would say the my DrAllisonMatthews.com website gives you a, a broader sense of who I am beyond just the the work that I do, you know, because, you know, while I would say I am an expert in HIV, I do obviously work with companies to, um, you know, improve their work workforce environment. Um, I've done a lot of talks on entrepreneurship. So I've actually done a lot of coaching with nonprofit organizations and with for-profit organizations, start startups, uh, minority-led startups on how to um, do fundraising, how to do pitch decks, how to, um, you know, scale their businesses, uh, you know, how to start a business with no money. We started our business with um, literally zero dollars in our first, our first gig was $1,500. And then we used that and put it, put more, you know, we were able to actually raise $70,000 in one year, starting with nothing. So, um, I think, you know, the using those insights and, and all of the incubator programs and things that I've been a part of, um, I, I try to pour into others. And so on our webs on my website, you'll have, you can find my blogs that have some of those tips as well as my TED talks that I've done, um, one in Durham and one in Cary. And so, yeah, you'll find a lot of information just about what I'm doing beyond just the traditional nine to five. Awesome. Cause you know, here at Southern Soul, we love, love, love entrepreneurship. I really believe that entrepreneurship is definitely the future of our community. I want to combine these questions because I want to hear about a couple things. When you talk about your website and it represents you, you actually wrote a contemporary article called What the Baby Got Wrong and Why It Matters, Fighting HIV Stigma Through the Lens of Love. Now, for the rest of y'all who don't know who the baby is, he one of them new rappers, right? You know, you got a little baby, you got a little Wayne, you got Dub Baby. Dub Baby is from Charlotte, North Carolina, and you know he's a pretty hip guy, but he got in trouble. Allison, tell us about HIV stigma, misconceptions, and what the baby got wrong and what he did wrong. Ooh, the baby, I you know I'm really concerned for him. <laughs> Yes, but, that boy, um, he's special, but keep going. <laughs> his real name I is I love his Jonathan. music, but keep going. Right, his real name is Jonathan. So <laughs> so um the baby was at the Rolling Loud, one of the Rolling Loud conferences, I mean, uh, excuse me, festivals in Miami. And he, you know, I guess he was trying to be provocative and he was he said some homophobic stuff and it was basically like anything you could do to offend black gay men, black women, and people living with HIV. And within three sentences, that's what he did. Um, and he said it on stage. And so then we we took that opportunity as the coordinating centers and to kind of call out the baby and, and um, educate the public and saying, you know, why, first of all, the baby is speaking from a place of, I would say, hurt and and living in a, a community and an environment where you have to like puff up your chest and show your masculinity as a way to like 
get some kind of uh, street credibility. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that he does and says are based on this idea of survival. Um, so it's not, you know, I don't, I don't believe in calling out black men just to, to condemn them, but I do believe in, um, you know, speaking about the the larger systemic issues that create an environment that creates a baby and people like the baby. And so I was talking about in my article, not only was he wrong, but also let's take the opportunity to educate him and then also look at these larger systems and how we're creating an environment where someone like him thrives um, rather than um, being educated about HIV and, and not saying things that are going to denigrate women and vulnerable populations like Black gay men. Awesome. You know, as we um, think about transitioning, um, you know, next up we got, you know, family health and history. And I love, you know, what Dr. Chapman is really, really, you know, passionate about is how do we normalize family black history? And I know some people who are listening, they're like, okay, you know, we're talking about this one topic, but what about family history? Through my eyes, I think it all connects. And the reason why it connects is because the work that Allison is doing with HIV stigma and community activity begins to create the backdrop, as I see, of how she's paying attention to what celebrities are saying. She's working with the various community organizations that essentially have a pulse on the Black community. And I think we can learn a lot from the work of HIV and AIDS health as we begin to think about other initiatives such as vascular health and other health within the community. So I want to pivot for a second, Allison, but let's talk about community activation, right? You work in multiple roles in your work, HIV, AIDS, you know, you're a founder, you're a director, you're an entrepreneur. And I really was excited when I found you because your organization published an article called Partnership Between Black Faith Leaders, HIV, AIDS, Communities, and How They Can Foster Change. But share with us your thought, Allison, based on what you've seen and engagement throughout the community on this health initiative on maybe some of the nuances of what you think we can do differently or do better to normalize black family health. Yeah, so I, I would say I would say the biggest the common thread through faith communities, through our families and through, you know, all of it is. Silence. Um, I think a big reason why HIV has so much stigma is because we like to sweep things under the rug and act like things never happen, right? And so the silence is what's killing us. And I think that's what Dr. Chapman is going to talk about, right? Is that we have to be able to communicate loved ones to, to say that we are here for you, we love you, we're not judging you, we just want you to be healthy and we want you to be happy. I think the important thing for everybody to know is that people living with HIV are living full, long lives. They're in relationships, they're having children, they're not passing on HIV to their partners. Um, you can actually, if you take a daily pill, you won't pass it on to your partner, um, <clears throat> even without a condom. And 
or through injection drug use. So that, you know, there's, we've made a lot of progress. There's also HIV prevention pill called PrEP that, um, that both men and women can take to prevent themselves to get from getting HIV up to 99%. Um, and so the, both of those are accessible, you know, with even if you don't have any insurance. And so I think, you know, having the conversation so that people have this knowledge and know where to go to get access to the information is uh, is critical because otherwise we're dying from silence and stigma. Awesome, awesome. One last question, you know, as we wrap up, um, what are some things you think the Black community should stop, start, and continue? And I think you've already continued that. And lastly, you know, we, we love supporting our speakers here at Southern Soul. Let us know, you know, how people can reach out to you. Um, and Tamika's going to share some of your contact information to DrAllisonMatthews.com. She's already shared. Um, I think you're on LinkedIn and Instagram, so you may have a favorite way for people to connect with you. But let's um, kind of wrap up at the, what are some things that you think we should stop, start, or continue in a Black community when it comes to HIV, AIDS, and health? Everybody thinks that HIV is, I mean, it is a very serious topic, but I think the reason why we've been able to make so much progress is because we make it fun. And so I would say stop, uh, you know, staying silent about it and start talking and then continue to laugh, to to dance, to, to experience joy, like laugh and kiki with your friends, uh, knock over the table from laughing, because I think that the joy is what brings us together and will also help us to end the HIV epidemic. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you, Dr. Allison Matthews. Calling in from San Paulo, uh, I think it's Brazil. I don't even know where she is. Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, Brazil. (laughs) She's just fancy, y'all. And y'all must understand, when y'all follow her, you'll tell she's in a different state, different country every week. I am so jealous, but at the same time, I'm fortunate and I'm thankful. Thankful that you would, you know, drop on down and hang out with us tonight and share some of the awesome work you're doing. I love when the um, visitors of Southern Soul often say, they say, Calvin, we love the community gems that you bring to us. And we love to see black and brown people doing awesome things. And Allison, thank you for doing those things that not just stopping at your nine to five, but continuing that community work. Like you said, it chose you, but you're all in. So we're thankful for you. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. David Chapman, how you doing? I'm fine, sir. I could not be better. Awesome. What do you think about uh, Allison Matthews? I love the work that she's doing. I can tell she's a Howard woman. Oh, uh, yeah? And, uh, she's very she's very passionate about what she does, and what she does is very important to all of our communities. Yes, indeed. Well, Dr. Chapman, just to get us started, tell us about you. You know, you introduced yourself earlier. Tell mm-hmm. us about your background, where you went to school, the organizations mm-hmm. you're affiliated with. Tell us about you. I will. Um, I am um, a Vanderbilt University graduate from 1985, maybe a little bit after you, but not very long after that. I also pledged Omega Sci Fi a little bit after you as well. Went on to uh, James Quillen College of Medicine, where I did my medical school, did my general surgery residency at Howard University. Best five years of my professional career, as I said earlier. And uh, then I did a vascular surgery fellowship at Alton Oxner Medical Foundation in New Orleans before coming back to home at that time, which was Middle Tennessee. And I practiced general vascular surgery for 26 years there before 
wrapping it up and putting my scalpel down in May of this year to move to Cleveland, Ohio, to be closer to my daughter. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. You know, I, I love the excitement of mm-hmm. a person who stays busy because it seems like mm-hmm. you're not done. You, you, you're still working. You've already you retired, but you already got a new job. I do. I do. And, and you're going back to school. Tell us about that. That's correct. Um, I started in uh, in August of this year uh, a program, a master's of business administration at Case Western Reserve's Weatherhead School of Management. Uh, and that MBA has a focus in uh, healthcare administration. And it's something that I've wanted to do for 15 years, but I did not really have the appropriate time to do it because I was a busy vascular surgeon and I did not see myself being able to do it nights and weekends while I was doing a busy practice and could not really have protected time. But I swore to myself when I was practicing that when I did have the time to do it, I would do it. And so uh, my wife and I shut it down, moved to Cleveland where my daughter is doing her training in OBGYN. And uh, at the same time, I just happened to find out about a uh, position in administration working as a medical director for Optum Healthcare and focused claims reviews. And it really dovetails very nicely with what I am uh, doing from the standpoint of acquiring uh, business administration uh, tools to move on to the next phase of my life. Oh, I am G. I love it. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I love entrepreneur. I love how you are staying busy. Let's kind of step back for a second. I would love to hear your mm-hmm. origin story. Like what influenced mm-hmm. you to get into become a general vascular surgeon? Was that something you always do? Tell us about where you grew up, you know, and sure, you know, sure. how did you get into this work? I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, where I am now until I was 13. And then I moved to Middle Tennessee. And when I was in Middle Tennessee, it was the first time that I ever had a chance to hang out with people whose parents were doctors. And, you know, that's one of the barriers to uh, higher education for many black kids in this country, black and brown kids, uh, is not having a mentor or connection to something which may seem like it's only a dream to you. But when I moved to to Nashville with uh, Meharry and Fisk in Tennessee State and their heavy duty um, influence on Nashville's education community, I found that I was in class with people whose parents were Meharry professors and OBGYNs and pediatricians. And I realized that I was a better student than most of them were. And if they were going to go on and do medical school, then maybe I could do it as well. So um, I had a chance to dissect fetal pigs when I was in 10th grade. And um, it's one of those assignments that 90% of people run screaming from and don't want anything to do with. I loved it. And I dissected about four fetal pigs in the room instead of just the one I was supposed to do. Uh, and one of the uh, teachers who who actually was the sister of several Meharry professors told me, you know, you should really think about being a surgeon. You're really good at this. And I said, really? She said, yes, you are. You're, you're not supposed to be able to do this at your age. You're supposed to be scared of all this stuff. So that kind of stuck in my head. I, it was the first medical mentorship I had in my whole in my whole life. And I think I was about 14 when that happened. So um, when I went on to medical school, I found that I liked surgery because it was difficult. It was challenging physically, mentally, um, and psychologically. And I've always been one of those people that the harder it goes, the harder I go. And so um, when I got to 
the point where I did my surgery rotation, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to take care of sick people. Sick people need good doctors, and I want to be a good doctor. I want to work hard. Um, I was also blessed to have a uh, surgery professor at uh, East Tennessee State who was a vascular surgeon, and he was the chief of the department. And I got a chance to work with him my senior year and scrubbed on a few cases with him. And I told him when I finished the rotation, if I could do the cases that you do, I would be the happiest person in the world. He said, well, then you will. You'll be a vascular surgeon. And he's someone that I went back to and asked for letters of recommendation. And he helped inspire me to be interested in vascular surgery. And at Howard, it was really like I it was really like like a, a moonshot. I mean, I, I took off at Howard. I got all of the exposure and support at Howard that may have been missing at every level of my education before I got there. So I tell people I'm a Vanderbilt, East Tennessee uh, State graduate, but I'm the biggest HBCU fan alive. And I think that black males especially uh, need to ha have their HBCU experience, whether it's in school, at work, or where you live. So. Awesome. You know, I, I love, 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 love a solid origin story. And I love how you described it. You went from one place to you say, hey, I'm in this place where I'm surrounded by the best and the brightest. I love that. Vanderbilt was one of those experiences. And then you kind of then you kind of size it up and you're like, wait a minute, I can do this and I can do it better. And I right. love when people plant the seeds of hope in children. And how that seed of hope began to inspire you and open your eyes to things that you probably wouldn't have seen without somebody, you know, as the Bible talk about it, blessing you with that inspiration. Correct. And I Correct. love it so much. So, you know, that, that's just a beautiful story. You know, let's step into vascular health. You know, <laughs> in, initially when I talk about vascular health, you know, I just want to kind of start from the basic. Can you really help us define what is vascular health? And what are the different parts of vascular health? What is vascular health? I will do exactly that, and I'll do it somewhat reductionistically. I'll start off by explaining. When I tell people I'm a vascular surgeon, most people say, what is that? And most people try to make it such that I'm a cardiologist, a person who fixes the heart vessels, or a cardiac surgeon, another person who operates on hearts and, and blood vessels. What I tell people is that I am a non-cardiac blood vessel surgeon. I operate on blood vessels outside of the heart. So the vessels that supply your brain, the carotid arteries, the vessels that supply your upper extremities, the clavian and axillary arteries, the vessels that supply your kidneys, the renal arteries, the vessels that supply your gut, the mesenteric arteries, the vessels that supply your lower extremities, the arteries to the uh, legs and feet. And the veins that return blood flow from all of those vessels are all part of the vascular surgical armamentarium. Also, we do dialysis access. And dialysis access, if anybody knows anyone who's ever had kidney failure, you have met someone who has a vascular surgeon because we put temporary dialysis access catheters in people. And then later, we convert them to permanent dialysis by creating a vessel in their body whether it be one of their own vessels or a synthetic vessel where dialysis access can be obtained. The needle can be placed that can draw blood out, place it through the dialysis machine, which filters out the impurities and returns it back to their body. Because without that treatment, those patients would perish. So um, it, it is it is heavy duty stuff. We do have some lighter action in vascular surgery. We deal with 
varicose veins and spider veins and lower extremity swelling that's due to venous disease. Uh, we treat deep venous blood clots, and uh, we may talk a little bit about that a little later. But uh, what I tell patients about vascular health is most people don't know they need a vascular surgeon until it's too late. It's one of those things that just like hypertension sort of creeps up on you. You may have it for 10 to 20 years before you start to have symptoms. What are those symptoms? For a blood clot, leg pain and swelling. For blockages in the lower extremities that supply the, uh, the vessels that supply the lower extremities, it can be cramping when you walk, exercise-related cramping. Patients who have diabetes often will have um, sores or ulcers on their feet, usually on the plantar surface or the, the part of your foot that walks on the, on the ground. Um, and the, the tricky part about that is diabetics have a neuropathy, which means they can't feel pain or sensation like they should. And as a result of that, they don't realize they have ulcers on the bottom of their feet. And those ulcers can become infected and can have very, very unfortunate circumstances, which often uh, lead them to lose toes, feet, and even legs. Um, we also have patients who have blockages to their kidney arteries, which predispose them to high blood pressure and renal failure. So uh, these things, uh, in addition to the blood vessels that lead to your brain and can cause you to have strokes, these are things that you need to know your family history in order to be able to prepare yourself for the sequelae of vascular disease and in order to protect your vascular health. There are some other things in your, um, in your, your background that also are very helpful. You need to know what your blood pressure is like. You need to know what your cholesterol is, whether you have too much good cholesterol or too much bad cholesterol. We can talk a little bit about that as well. You need to know what your lipid profile is, and you need to know who in your family may have had these vascular diseases that we're talking about. Because, as I always share with people, the good Lord is fabulous. He puts the information into you that you need to know in order to protect yourself from what's going to harm you later. Uh, the, the, the problem is it sometimes can be in the form of a puzzle, meaning that you can live with somebody for 25 or 30 years. And because you don't talk to him about what's wrong with you and he doesn't talk to you about what's wrong with him, you all have not found out that information. It's right there in front of you. You're sitting down at the table eating grits and ham and sausage and eggs. And maybe you shouldn't be eating any of them because your blood pressure is so high and your cholesterol is so high and your lipids are so high and you have a history of hypercholesterolemia, coronary artery disease and peripheral vascular disease in your family. But these are conversations that we need to have in order to protect us from what vascular disease can do to you. Awesome. Awesome. You know, thank you for sharing that because it definitely creates the backdrop. I love how you describe you can be sitting directly across the table from a person and mm -hmm. not having that conversation, that silence mm -hmm. that Dr. Mm -hmm. Allison Matthews was speaking of. You know, as I was preparing for the show, I, I, it hit me that a celebrity or, you know, someone really well-known has experienced these problems, Deion Sanders. Tell us about what Deion Sanders experienced and, you know, maybe what he could have done differently or what really happened to Deion Sanders. Because I think he lost two toes, right? He did. He lost, he lost part of his foot. Deion had a condition uh, that was really, it's, it's interesting. He had some minor 
surgery on his foot. And as a result of it, ended up having a hypercoagulable state where he, he threw blood clots from a large vessel into small vessels. And he ended up with a, a, a condition called compartment syndrome. And they had to go in and amputate uh, necrotic or dead toes in order to basically, it wasn't really to save his life. It was to get him over pain and to stop the process. But I always tell patients that these are problems that usually remaining active after a surgical procedure can, uh, can offset. Um, also, there are some things that you do when you're in the hospital and you have a patient who's had a surgical procedure that minimize the risk of them having either arterial or deep vein blood clots like compression stockings or sequential compression devices. Um, sometimes we place patients on aspirin or even forms of blood thinners in order to minimize their risks of clots. But what I always tell people is that sometimes having a, a celebrity who has a problem can be a blessing instead of a curse because Deion Sanders has millions of people who follow him worldwide. And if they know he has this problem, then it means something to them. It's something that they might do a little bit of research on their own to find out what's my chance of this happening. Um, the thing that I like to share with um, with African-Americans and, and people who tend to be in what I call pockets of ignorance. When I say pockets of ignorance, you may not have access to someone who has the information that would keep you out of trouble, has the information that's readily available to people who are in um, higher socioeconomic status, et cetera. Um, and I like to say that these are situations that we need to talk to each other about. We need to educate each other about in order to fill these gaps. I think that our communities can do a better job of that. Our churches can do a job of it. Our schools can do better jobs of that. Our fraternities and sororities can do better jobs of it. One thing I know is that we, we know how to party. You know, uh, I, I, I have never, ever been to a, an Omega or Delta party where I didn't have a good time. I would like to sit down and have a Delta or Omega smoker where we sit down and talk about vascular health strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, uh, obesity, prostate cancer. And I've had the opportunity to do some of these things during my career. Um, when I was in Murfreesboro, I was often asked by local churches to come and talk to the youth about things that they needed to be worried about. And I also talked to people who were in my group of patients because vascular surgical patients tend to be a bit older than the average patient because these disease processes really don't begin to bother you until you get into your fourth or fifth decade of life. Um, unfortunately, for Black people, that tends to be somewhere between five to 10 years earlier than it does in the majority population. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we can talk about that as well. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You definitely hit on yeah. one of my favorite topics. And, you know, Katie, um, she's often said, she's like, Cal, when are we going to do that show on traditional organizations? You know, the whole topic of, you know, or how are our traditional organizations serving us? Even recently, I was listening to a session with um, Dr. Um, Gates of PBS, and he was talking about, and the question was posed, hey, do churches still serve that traditional purpose of being the community center or engagement? And one of the speakers made a good statement, and I liked it. He says, you know, things evolve. He said, at one point in time, there was this black magazine, I mean, black newspaper, and a black newspaper was the source of information for the community. 
He says, but over time, the black newspaper kind of disappeared and it's, you know, people get information elsewhere. He says, but then a new organization pops up like Black Twitter. And people begin to get information from Black Twitter like they used to get information from the black newspaper. I definitely uh, can appreciate what you're saying about our organizations because, you know, as times and things evolve, we still got to get the message to the people. We still got to find ways for people to get these very important segments. And I like the way you name some of the organizations because you're right. We can definitely utilize some traditional organizations to get access and at the same time leverage some of the newer organizations. I want to kind of talk about um, some of the experiences you've seen in the black community. You've had an opportunity to see patients, black men, black women, and I mm -hmm. love the way you describe it. You say, I can look at your parents and almost predict what your health is going to be like. Tell us about some of your experiences as a vascular surgeon in working with black men and black men, the community. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it, it deals with the whole thing that Dr. Williams was talking about earlier. It's the same thing that makes it very difficult to, to educate people and decrease the fear associated with HIV. We have a fear and ignorance factor that is invisible, but is literally palpable. You can feel it. You know, people don't know, but they don't want to know. And so I have patients that will come to see me. I have a fellow who was 51 years of age. He came to see me and he said, Doc, I'm worried. I said, worried about what? He said, I just feel like somebody needs to check me out. I said, why? He said, well, my, my mother died when she was 50 of a stroke and my father had his first stroke when he was 52. And I'm afraid I'm going to have a stroke. And he was 48 at that time. He didn't have any symptoms whatsoever. He just came in because he was afraid. And so I did an examination on him and I put a stethoscope on each side of his neck because that's where the carotid arteries are. The carotid arteries are the blood vessels that supply your face and your brain predominantly. And when I listened to his neck, I heard a whoosh when I put the stethoscope on his neck. That whoosh is called a bruit, B-R-U-I-T. It's not something you're supposed to hear with the stethoscope. When you listen to a blood vessel, this is what you're supposed to hear. Nothing, okay? If you hear a whoosh, it's very similar to what happens when you take a, a garden hose and put your finger over most of it, but let a little jet come out. It's a very high-frequency, agitated stream of flow that makes noise. That's the same thing that happens when someone has a high-grade carotid blockage often. So when I did the ultrasound study on this fellow to see how bad the blood vessels were blocked, he had a 95% blockage on one and a 97% blockage on the other, completely asymptomatic. Over a six-week period, I fixed both of his carotids. He didn't have a stroke. And he went on to live for another 18 years where he probably would have died within the next year or two of a stroke, if not just one stroke. He could have been more than one stroke. So when I talk about family history, I tell people, look at the people in your family. See what it is that bothers them. Why is that important? You contain somewhere between 40 to 70 percent of the genetic material of each of your parents. And it'll be in a different mixture based upon the way the good Lord wanted it to come out. But if both of your parents have high blood pressure, 
and both of your parents have high cholesterol and both of your parents have had strokes at an early age and you do the same things that they did, such as eat lots of, you know, uh, cholesterol, fried foods, smoke cigarettes, you're probably going to have a stroke as well if nothing else gets to you first. So we need to be a little bit more investigative about the things that can bother us. Stop trying to live forever because none of us are going to do that. You know, there's an old song that says nobody gets out of here alive. I mean, none of us get out of here alive. We're all going to meet our maker. And what we only thing we can do is sometimes change the mode of exit and the time of exit. But I, you know, we had this conversation earlier when I told you that I'd gone, that I was going back to school. I'm one of the older people in my class, but I'm planning on being even older than that. So I have to keep myself in good shape. And I'm doing those same things for myself. I tell my patients, find out what your, what your uh, family members have. I have a, an interesting piece of information to add. I was raised by my mother and my stepfather. I didn't meet my, um, my real father until I was 36 years old. The first question I asked him when I met him was, what health issues do you have? And he was like, I don't know why that's important. I said, no, you don't, but I'm a physician and I do know why that's important because I know what problems my mother has. I need to know what problems my father has. And he didn't have many, thank goodness. But that's a conversation that you need to have with the people that you love. I don't care how mad they get when you ask them, because some people don't want to talk to you about their health care issues. They don't want to admit that they're human, especially not to their children. You know, you know how that works. But you need to have that conversation with them. You need to have that conversation with your siblings. Uh, I've had siblings that have had health care issues that I don't know that I have. And as soon as I find out about those things, I take that information back to my doctor and I say, hey, my sister has this problem. I want you to check for it in me, right? And I want you to try to do that. Most of us, when we go to the doctor, again, we go armed with fear and ignorance. We don't ask any questions we don't want the answers to. We don't tell them any answers they didn't ask the questions for, all right? That's not the relationship you need to have with your doctor. Your PCP or primary care physician, whether it be a nurse or a physician, whoever, their job is to find out what's wrong with you, and you have much more information than they do, all right? All you have to do is be open and honest and tell them, I don't want to die next week. I don't want to become disabled anytime soon. Please find out everything that's going on with me, okay? And I, I feel the same way about the family health issue as I do about things like healthcare screening, things like digital rectal examinations for men and prostate-specific uh, antigen or PSA test to detect prostate cancer, which they advise should be done for black men at 45. That's a full 10 years before everybody else does because it happens earlier in us, and when it presents, it's worse in us than it is in anybody. The death rate for black men with prostate cancer is almost twice as high as it is for everybody else. Um, things like breast cancer. You don't need to Hide from the doctor if you're a woman. You need to see your doctor on a regular basis. You need to get mammograms as they're indicated. You need to get a colonoscopy when you're 45 if you're a black male or female. Earlier than everyone else because, again, colon cancer presents earlier. It is worse. We lost Chadwick Bozeman. I don't know that we could have saved him because he was in his 30s, but I do know a bit of information that he had 
a brother that had early colon cancer as well, and it was discovered before it was fatal for him. Um, so family history, and that's, again, something that we need to do. It, we're not on an island. You're not alone. We're all connected, especially when you share genes. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that about Chadwick Bozeman, but mm -hmm. wow. Wow. You know, a, a few other sections. I want to kind of talk about racial disparities. I want to talk mm -hmm. about, you know, re, um, restorative health and community mm -hmm. activation. You've mm -hmm. already kind of alluded to some of the disparities and thank you for that. But uh, I just want to kind of, you know, talk about these three sections before we do some questions. There are some questions popping up in the chat. But what mm -hmm. are your thoughts on racial disparities and why they are important? Because sometimes people talk about them, but they don't know what to do about them. You know, I guess sure. you kind of say sure. that they're going to present earlier. Therefore, we should take them seriously. And what are the things like blood clots? I mean, are there certain things or is it all things? I don't know. What are your thoughts about what we should do about these disparities? Well, you know, the racial disparities, I tell people that there are a couple of things that are going on when you have disparities between socioeconomic groups. Some of those disparities are genetic. You know, our, our genetic history regarding prostate cancer and uh, hypertension and um, uh, uh, coronary artery disease, some of those things are just very different from the way people from Europe and the way people from Canada and those places present. And so it, it has to put you on alert to look earlier. I always tell my patients, They'll have patients that'll come in to see me with vascular issues. And the first question I ask them, especially when they're past 25, is who's your primary care physician? And you'd be surprised how many times I'm met with a blank stare. They're like, I don't have a primary care physician. I'm not sick. And I always ask them, how do you know that? If you're hypertensive, you're not going to know it until someone takes your blood pressure. You're not going to know it until you have a secondary sign of hypertension, headache, stroke, kidney issues. Those things present really late. So what you have to do is you have, you have to become your own advocate and you have to say, I want to be healthy. I know I might carry some, some genes that make it a little bit more difficult for me to navigate an 80-year life without these difficulties. So I'm going to have somebody come and look for these things for me. Um, I don't really look to the world or even the country to necessarily remedy the socioeconomic discrepancies that we have. And I will tell you that education and a pound of prevention are worth much more than anybody else could give us. And so we need to educate ourselves. We need to organize our communities to educate people so that they don't wait until they have to end up in the emergency room with these secondary and tertiary issues because the survival rates and the outcomes are always worse in those situations than they are when people get a colon cancer picked up by their physician who does a digital rectal examination, smears the um, specimen on the card and realizes there's blood in the stool. Those people do really well usually with colon cancer surgery. The people who present with bowel obstruction and perforation, they don't do well. Those are the people who wait until they can't eat, can't um, have bowel movements, and their belly is bloated and they're sick. We've got to stop being in that group of patients. And there are a lot of things that prevent us from being in the group of patients that are d diagnosed earlier, things like insurance coverage, 
and financial situation. But I, I, I think here in Cleveland, I, I'm very fortunate to live in a place that has a tiered system of healthcare that's really excellent. They've got the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals, several private hospitals, Metro Health, and the VA Medical Center. And what I always tell people is if you live in a town that has that kind of health care, there's really no excuse for you not to be seen. It, it isn't a situation where you can't get in the door because even Metro Health will take anybody who walks in that door. And that's the way we have to treat it. We have to get over the um, shame and embarrassment of being impoverished and seek help. You know, I remember one of the students in our class said that one of the reasons it's hard to sell health care to people is because nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to have surgery. Nobody wants to have screening studies. They're painful. They're uncomfortable. They they shame you by having you walk around with your clothes off inside a building where everybody else is, is clothed. But that's the price of being healthy. So we have to seek that out. You know, thanks for sharing that. You know, it definitely gives gives me pause and thoughts. You know, one of the things you said about, you know, talking to parents, right? And mm-hmm. true story, I'm talking to my dad, right? And I'm, you know, I'm reading all of these books and I'm trying to be, mm-hmm. you know, into legacy planning and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But what you said is exactly what happened. And I don't know how it happened, but he got mad, then I got mad, right? Because sure. I got mad because I'm like, I think this, think he, you know, I, I was very creative, but I like, I think he think I want his money or something, right? And right. I'm all, right. and boy, I got triggered. I'm like, I don't want nobody's money. I ain't never asked for nobody's money. I don't, <laughs> you know, I got mad, right? <laughs> sure, sure. But you said it best. You said, I don't care if they get mad. Correct. And because I know what it means for when I realized what I was just trying to have a conversation that I thought was appropriate. But then I had to think about what you said, too, is they don't want their children to see them as human or they're going to die and all this other kind of stuff. It's complicated. But the way you describe it, hey, I don't care if you get mad or be prepared for people to get mad because I wasn't prepared. So when I seen that behavior, I got mad. And when I got mad, then all of a sudden he start apologizing. He like, I'm like, well, I don't care. And he's like, no, 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 you should care. I'm like, mm, I'm done. I don't care. You know I mean? <laughs> so it's, it's real how you describe it. Sure. One of the things that I'm also proud that you're um, into is restorative health. That's been a contemporary topic, but I love it. You know, a lot of my homeboys and stuff are like, oh man, we don't know about these doctors. All they want to do is push these pills, push these pills. And then all of a sudden I see this nuance of they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, there are certain people that are not into pill pushing or not, whatever. In short, mm-hmm. I remember when I first heard about blood pressure, they said, never get on blood pressure medication because you'll be on it for your life. And I, I thought that was mm-hmm. so morbid. I'm in my 20s, right? Mm-hmm. But then as I got older, I began to understand how a person could stay on blood pressure medication for the rest of their life because it's easier to take a pill right. than to participate in some sort of restorative health. Do you mind introducing us to the topic of restorative health and why it's important to you and some things that you think we can do, you know, in this restorative health opportunity as doctors and sure, patients. Sure. Well, what I, I like to tell people is that there there are lots of ways to treat disease or to pre-treat disease. Some of them involve surgery. Some of them involve radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Some of them involve medications. But before we had any of that, especially in places like the East and China, they had things like acupuncture, they had massage therapy, they had meditation, 
everyone in this on this planet has had experience with exercise. I tell people that exercise is one of the best forms of medicine you could ever have. And I, I tell my patients anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes of cardiovascular fitness exercise on a daily basis will keep you off of my operating table in, in many situations. And it, it, it isn't just losing weight. It's all about muscle mass. It's about creating a good sense of harmony in your bloodstream, getting rid of the bad uh, proteins and bad fats that are in your body. It's about challenging your kidneys, challenging your heart, challenging your liver. Um, we have lost the opportunity with the ease with which we live our lives in the world today to prepare ourselves to deal with the challenges. I, I see people that I've taken care of over the last 20 or 30 years, they're 75 and 80 years old. They're in better cardiovascular health than their grandkids are. Grandkids, 28 years old, he weighs 330 pounds, he can't walk a flight of stairs. His granddad can work 12 hours out in the field in the farm because that's what he's been doing since he was seven or eight years old. And I believe that we need to get back to that sort of thing. We need to start meditating. You need to listen to music. You need to get out and take walks. You need to, to go to church somewhere. Find some superpower that's stronger than you and believe in that and calm your mind. And I also think that there's some uh, connections between what we're seeing now and the problems that we have with mental health and mood disorders in our community. You know, people are decompensating because they don't have the appropriate, um, the, pro the appropriate ways to release their, their stresses and um, get back to their baselines. And I think that if everyone considered uh, restorative health as one of the things that can bring you back to center, you might be able to do with less medicine and with less surgery. And you might be able to keep your mind straight uh, instead of being off balance, as we see with a lot of people. Awesome, awesome. You know, one last um, segment, and we're going to do some questions. There's been a few questions put in the <laughs> chat. And Tamika, if you don't mind, help me, because I've seen the questions kind of scroll up. If you don't mind helping me, you know, prioritize those questions and um, get them, because we want to spend some Q&A with Dr. Chapman. Um, community activation. We've kind of chatted about that a little bit, and I love the traditional organizations, but at the same time, I love what was stated. As times change and evolve, you may discover that your traditional organizations are just not meeting the needs. But at the same time, I, when I begin to think about community activations, I think about who are the grassroots leaders in our communities? You know, who? what are the most effective avenues that we can use to get the word out? And... <laughs> There are certain places like what Dr. Matthew was talking about. There are certain places, communities that just don't have resources. But then mm -hmm. right next door, there may be a community that has resources. What are your thoughts on community activation? I mean, does the sororities, does the traditional organizations, um, how do you feel that these community activation or our community centers can help us normalize family medical health history? Well, you know, I think in the black community, you always have to start with the church because it's our oldest organization and it's our steadiest organization. Um, and and I, <clears throat> I would not ever give up on fraternities, sororities and churches. I would challenge them, however, to do more than bake sales and 
you know, building funds and, fish fries. you know, fish, fish fries and marches and those sorts of things. They're things that we do because it's what we've always done, but they aren't helping as many people as we think they're helping. There are things that we need help with. You know, I think that one of the biggest problems we have in our community right now is mental health. We just ignore it. We completely ignore it. If someone has a mental health issue, it's their problem. It's not the the community's problem. But that's a whole different discussion for a whole different Southern Soul Thursday. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that um, we, we should, again, challenge our communities. We should ask for help from people like the Masons and the Eastern Stars. You should ask your politicians, your elected politicians, whether they're Black people or other than Black people. These are community issues, and we are part of that community, and we need to ask for attention to our issues. Um, I I do think that those organizations that we're talking about lose steam when they operate individually and independently. There should be a little bit more of a coalition. And the the problem with coalitions is then you get five groups together and then you have 15 leaders who aren't really leaders anymore, and then nothing gets done. So um, it, it's it's a someone asked a question earlier about vascular research, especially in the African American community. Not enough of it is being done, but I think that <clears throat> leadership and organization research needs to be done as well. And people who are in charge of those groups need to sit down and talk to each other and realize what our issues are and get back on the same page. O M G! I love it! I love it! I love it, man! <laughs> I'm so excited, but I'm I'm going to stay on topic tonight because you just opened so many topics, so many cans of worms, as they would say, that like you said, we can talk about, I mean, I'm already thinking about part two of this discussion, which is a <laughs> panel discussion with various leaders from various organizations that begin to think mm-hmm. about how do you mobilize beyond the traditional into the things that we need now. Here at Southern Soul, we love... We're passionate about mental health. Even people ask me, why do you do so many topics on mental health? I'm like, have you not been paying attention? Do you your eyes open? Do you not (laughs) see how these people are breaking and falling on TV Mm -hmm. in real life? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and then we we would joke about, you know, traditional churches. Like, you know, I think there was mental health in the traditional church. They and the, the prayer went something like this. Well, I'm thankful today that I woke up in my right mind. In my right mind. <laughs> right? And it and goes on, it. right? And yeah. it took me, but as a young man, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, well, maybe one day I'm going to wake up not in my right mind. I didn't know what to do with that. But somebody said, you got to call a thing a thing. And when you call it mental health and there's resources and support and doctors behind it, you can get help. But people don't know what right. to do waking up in your right mind. What do you do with that, right? You know, young people, right. I was confused. Those cliches get us in trouble. Let's go through some questions. Tamika, help me get through these questions. I know we got some questions for Dr. Chapman. Tamika, can you help me um, get through these questions and let me know? Um, And actually, Dr. Chapman uh, alluded to one of the first questions that was up there, and it was about, you know, are we doing enough in our community, but what can we do to offer support? So as individuals, what should we do to help? Well, you know, everybody... Everybody who's an individual is a part of a church, potentially, is a part of a fraternity or a sorority, potentially. Um, one of the things that I have <clears throat> tried to emphasize 
throughout my professional career. Hold on a second. I got a little frog in my throat. <clears throat> throughout my professional career is that we appoint leaders, but in reality, we're all leaders. Okay. Everybody has a, a voice. Everybody has a vote. Everybody has a stake. And what you have to do is you have to participate outside of your home in some progressive movement, you know, and that's the hard part. You know, we can all go back and read the books <clears throat> and talk about how the Montgomery bus boycott was organized, but it basically was organized in churches and funeral homes and people's homes after work, before work on Saturdays and Sundays. Now, how many of us do things like that with our free time off in 2022? We don't. And I can't, again, this is a whole different topic <clears throat> for a different Southern Soul Thursday. What happened to our enthusiasm? What happened to our motivation? That's really what's missing. It isn't that the problems aren't there. It's not that the solutions aren't there. I really think it's the attention and the motivation. Too many game screens and too many uh, subscriptions to Netflix and Hulu and all those sorts of things. That's what's taking our time and our energy up right now. Awesome. Awesome. Tamika, if you can grab the next question, <laughs> remind me of that. Um, PBS is coming out with a new um, Henry Louis Gates session entitled um, Through the Grapevine. And mm -hmm. he talks about how after doing reconstruction, how the black community began to come together and create resources for itself. For example, if we didn't have a barbershop, we created our own. If we didn't have a grocery store, we created our own. And then somewhere around civil rights, it happened again. We begin to pull together our resources to say, oh, we need a barbershop, we need this. We need to come together and solve our problems as a community. But then they Correct. go and say, well, this time around, it's a little different. Because Very this time different. around, we don't have the strong churches or the strong community centers or the strong cohesiveness to begin to solve our own problems. So we definitely are living during a new time. Tamika, you got the next question? Yep. Go ahead. Um, it had, the question was, how often should hypertensive African-American women take a stress test? So is there... <clears throat> that's a that's a good question, and that actually sort of is a multi-layered question. What I what I would do is the first thing I would do if I'm hypertensive is I'd make sure that by the time I'm I've, I've seen this physician that is treating my hypertension that I'm not hypertensive four to six weeks later. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, I would like to know what my family history is. All right, because your history of having a heart a heart event is going to be <clears throat> heavily influenced by what your parents' history of having a heart event was like. You also need to uh, consider what the patient's high, their uh, cholesterol is like, what their lipids are like, whether or not they smoke, whether they exercise. All of those things have something to do with it. I would say if you have those risk factors working against you, Having a stress test somewhere between 40 and 50, and you, you might need to have your physician give you a little bit more guidance on that because they have all that information that I just discussed, <clears throat> and I don't. But if you have a negative stress test, you probably wouldn't need another one for another four to five years minimum or maximum um, because this is not something that's going to change quickly if you control all of those risk factors. It's something that's going to progressively change. 
Awesome, awesome. We're going to give Dr. Chapman an opportunity to grab a drink because he's been <laughs> talking consistently. And, you know, brother, I'm so, so glad we get a chance to have this conversation. You know, um, been connected for many, many years, but never got a chance to really just connect. And, you know, I'm one of those persons that believe things happen for a reason. But sitting down with you tonight and talking, it's all happening. I'm like, OMG. Yeah, there is some passion. You know, I sometimes people get mad at me when I critique our traditional organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a person down in Atlanta. They said, well, my chapter raised, you know, uh, 100K. I said, how many mem- members y'all got? Mm-hmm. I said, you realize your chapter could raise a half a million based on all of those Easily. people y'all got. Easily. Right? Yeah. Let's not rest on our laurels. Never. Katie gave us a word of the week, you know. Go ahead. You you had something you want to say? No, you please, please. This is your show. Yeah, Katie had a word of the week, you know. She, she, you know, she, y'all know Katie, she got 10 um, dictionaries, right? He, a cautionary tale. I love that term. (laughs) If you've been here tonight, you've heard multiple speakers give us wisdom, pearl after pearl of wisdom. I asked to the listeners tonight in the audience, the listeners, when this, podcast is published in a couple of weeks to heed to listen to this cautionary tale the warnings the awareness the what we can do a little bit different not pointing a finger not blaming anybody but just building awareness and I'm going to play a few songs and once again I told y'all that Tracy called me out last week she said I didn't know nothing about no go-go so I'm going to play some old and some new <laughs> we're going to give Dr. Chapman a chance to rest his voice and maybe he's going to drop in the chat a few questions but Dr. Chapman let us know how can people follow you I know you're doing so much I know you, you haven't started your consulting business yet because you're so busy but how can people best support the work that you're doing what I tell people is I'm easily available on Twitter on DMCQ2 Sci-Fi and on uh, LinkedIn, and you just look me up, D-A-V-I-D-C-H-A-T-M-A-N. Please send me a word. I'd love to chat with you. I actually have more time to think and talk to people uh, in this part of my life than I have since I was, uh, since I was dating, uh, you know, and that was, that was when I was in medical school. So um, I share uh, my time and uh, my heart freely. So just, you know, let me know what's on your mind. I'll be glad to talk to you. Awesome. Y'all need to catch him very soon. Tamika dropped in the chat your LinkedIn. Um, a wise person once told me, this man had to be 80 years old. I was volunteering at this uh, nonprofit. He says, the quickest thing you can do when you retire is give away your time. And he said, there's going to be a lot of people asking for your time. So y'all better catch Dr. Chapman soon, because I'm telling you, by next year, he's going to be like, man, y'all know how, realize <laughs> how much time. So thank you, Dr. Chapman. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for discussion with the audience.